This is They Create Worlds, episode 154, Nintendo Playing with Controversy. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. So we've had a long time to sit down, Alex, and play lots and lots of card games. All sorts of card games. Ranging from all of these Mario characters to all of these various Japanese scenes around seasons of winter, summer. It's wonderful. And we even got to do things to build a solid foundation with concrete in order to know that with a strong foundation of concrete, you can make cards. That's right. So, of course, there's only one logical place to go from here, and that is instant rice. Instant rice. That's right. But before we get there, we do have to connect a few more of the dots because we have left Nintendo at a place where it has become the largest, most successful card company in Japan, has become a major force in the Kyoto area, and is about to hit a period of time that will be very challenging for a variety of reasons. World War II not being the least of those, but also the problems that have developed within the family. We found one person who went traitor. That's right, who fled his responsibilities and the family business, left his wife and his five-year-old son, Hiroshi, to fend for themselves. That's where our story takes up here. It was a real scandal, obviously. This is a well-respected family, the Amalchi family, Shikanochu Inaba, the individual we're talking about who was adopted into the family, was supposed to carry on a very proud and very noble business going back even at that point several decades. In Japan, obviously, there's a big sense of family obligation and family duty as well, even more so than I would say in many Western countries. When Shikanochu left, this was a humongous scandal. His wife, Sekiro Yamauchi's daughter, Sekiro, we may recall, being the current executive in charge of the company, she went to live with her sister. I mean, she was totally disgraced by this. It's not her fault she didn't force him out or force him to flee or something, but as the person who's left behind, I mean, the brunt of the scandal falls on her. Hiroshi is taken from her. Her young son, Hiroshi, is taken from her to be raised by his grandparents. Because Hiroshi is now going to be someday, he's only five at this time, but someday this is going to be the next president of Nintendo. He needs to be within the family business with a strong patriarchal figure to groom him and prepare him for this. So he's actually separated from his mother. I mean, they still see each other. It's not like she went to some other city or something. And is raised by his grandparents. And this, I think, has a profound impact on Hiroshi because he was basically, according to Hiroshi himself, he was basically allowed to do whatever he wanted. He was now the sole heir and the sole hope of the future of the Nintendo business of the Yamauchi family. So his grandparents basically let him run free. This is very akin to like almost a regency where you have regents taking over running a country, 
then you have the crown prince who's going to be the person who's going to be in charge and they're five years old until they quote unquote come of age, then someone else has to rule the country. In this case, a company. Yes, though, I mean, Sekiro Yamauchi is still around. It's Sekiro Yamauchi's company. He's still running it. It's not like his father was taking over the company tomorrow. It's just that that was the line of succession. When Sekiro retired or died or whatever else, then it would have been Shikanoju, but now it's got to be young Hiroshi. Another point I wanted to bring up with him is this is the first time that in this line that you've actually had a male heir. Mm -hmm. To this point, you've had female heirs who cannot, according to their society, take over the company. Right. So that's why we had all these multiple lines of succession coming in where you adopt someone. Right. This is the first time that they have a male heir for the company. Yeah. So I think that might have played a heavy role into him being raised by a strong patriarchal figure, also being able to get away with pretty much anything because he's the male heir. Yes, like you said, he's the first male heir that the Yamauchi family has had in generations, so there's definitely a big deal to that. And I think a lot of this shaped who Hiroshi Yamauchi would become, both the way he was raised by his grandparents and the way he was abandoned by his father. He was a handsome young man. He was very debonair. He dressed well. He behaved well. He was kind of the model of the upper crust. He was a very witty man, but there was always an edge to him. Both as a young man and as the person who, of course, would take over Nintendo and would be in charge of Nintendo all the way until 2002, almost 50 years. There was kind of an edge to him. There was a coldness. There was almost a cruel streak hiding underneath. Very ruthless, very cold. Would you say it'd be akin to someone who had an iron fist but covered in a velvet glove? From what we've heard, he didn't even really cover it in a velvet glove. <laughs> you know, I mean, he could obviously be gracious, debonair, and aristocratic like that when he needed to be. But I think anyone who ever worked for Mr. Yamauchi knew that that glove was very thin. That iron fist was never far from the surface. So maybe more like, say, Hank Scorpio from The Simpsons, who's very nice when you are doing things the way he wants, and then you cross him, and then he goes out? Not like that, because... He was always very stern and a man of few words and a man of penetrating gaze. He was not a gladhander. He was not somebody who made you feel like you were their best friend. He was the boss. He had an arrogant streak. I mean, he was the scion of this great family, and he was raised knowing what his birthright was and being encouraged to accept that birthright. He was distant. He was ruthless. He was often cold. He lived and breathed the Nintendo business. It was all-consuming for him. It worried him. He suffered from horrible stomach pains, ulcers, other physical ailments at times when he was just so twisted into worry over the company. I think he felt probably—I I don't want to armchair psychologize too much. I'm, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do think that he felt a lot of that pressure— to keep Nintendo great because this was the family company that he was entrusted with and he was entrusted with it before he was supposed to be. I mean, it was a heavy burden he was asked to carry from a very young age. He had very few hobbies. The company was his life. He played Go and he was a very, very good Go player. 
He was high ranking. He was a fourth or fifth ranked Don, I think, somewhere in there. I'd have to look it up to be sure. But he was an expert Go player. Nintendo and Go were basically the only two things in his life. Now, it wasn't that way when he was younger. Like I said, the business was all-consuming. He grew up as very much a playboy type. He was spoiled as a child, as I said. He was allowed to roam free. He, of course, was a teenager when World War II broke out. His grandmother made sure that he would never have to serve on the front lines. He was too young when the war started. He was definitely going to be coming of age, but his grandmother was able to use the family connections, because they were a very influential family, to keep him in school in a top-notch preparatory school at first. And then they were able to secure him work in a factory because you still have to build the stuff that goes to the front lines as well. So if you were in certain factory jobs, you were essential to the war effort and you didn't have to be a soldier. Obviously, those were highly coveted positions because you didn't have to go to the front lines. So his grandparents made sure that he didn't. So he never had to serve. But he grew up in this time period. He was a teenager as Japan was being destroyed. Of course, Kyoto was spared. Kyoto is the one major Japanese city that was never bombed because it was the cultural heart of Japan, and it was felt that it would do more harm than good. Strategic bombing, there's a lot of problems with strategic bombing, but the idea of strategic bombing is to be demoralizing to the enemy. Whether it really works or not, well, let's just say nobody does that kind of bombing anymore, so (laughs) modern military theory is that it doesn't really work. But the entire idea is to be demoralizing to the enemy. Bombing Kyoto would have had the opposite effect. It wouldn't have demoralized. It would have stiffened resolve because it was the cultural heart of Japan. It had been the imperial capital for centuries before the Meiji Revolution and the move to Tokyo. It was a center of worship. There were many, many temples. It was never bombed. It was actually chosen to be the site of the second atomic bomb drop after the Hiroshima bomb drop, but was vetoed by President Truman, and they went for Nagasaki instead. But it's not just that they didn't have the atomic bomb dropped on them. They didn't suffer the fire bombings that places like Tokyo suffered through either. The war didn't have as much of a direct effect on Kyoto as it did on some other parts of the country, though, of course, everybody suffered during the war. How could they not? For Nintendo, it was a period of distress, obviously, because they make leisure products. Leisure products aren't exactly big sellers in wartime, especially in a culture like Japan. I mean, you might say, well, okay, they make playing cards. Well, American servicemen, I mean, they took packs of playing cards with them to the front. I mean, that's great. You're in playing cards. All the soldiers are going to want that, right? Well, no, because the Japanese, uh, the cultural mindset is very different. The idea of being totally and completely dedicated to an effort and having no outside distraction is very important. Amusement of all types in Japan basically stopped during the war. I mean, we talked about the sum in the context of the Japanese arcades. Pachinko shut down. I mean, all the pachinko parlors in the nation were closed. The rooftop arcade spaces, the rooftop game spaces, where a lot of the early electromechanical stuff could be found in Japan in this time period, those were all shut down. Distractions from the work were not permitted. So Nintendo's factories, it was a difficult time, and it was a question of will Nintendo be able to make it through this period? There's a lot of people who throw around the concept of total war. That concept being that every man, woman, and child is working toward the war effort. It's practically impossible for any culture to achieve total war. 
I believe it's fair to say that in World War II, the Japanese culture came as close as any society probably can to the concept of total war. Absolutely. They were actually saved because they were very useful for the propaganda purposes of the Japanese military government. We talked last time about one of the types of card games that Nintendo made, which was the Hyakunin Ishu, which were these card games where you had quotations from famous poets, and you put out all of the quotations on the floor, and then one person is reading from a card a quotation, and then you have to scramble and find the card that has the last line of that poem on it and be the first to present it. The Japanese government decided during this time period, of course, propaganda is very important to keep your population engaged in a war effort, especially a war effort that at times is not going well, and keeping everyone committed to the single cause of national victory over the nation's enemies. So a lot of propaganda going around, true in every country in the war, not just the Axis powers, lots of propaganda in America, too. One thing that the Japanese government decided to do was to commission a modified version of the Hyakunin Ishu card game, where instead of 100 poems, famous poems from famous poets, there would be 100 quotations and poems, both, some quotations, some poems, that were of a nationalist nature. Quotations that had to do with exalting the greater glory of Japan and the Japanese Empire and its glorious struggle against its enemies. Propaganda slogans, essentially. So instead of somebody reading out a poem and everyone else scrounging around for the last line, someone would read out a propagandist slogan and everyone had to scrounge around for the last line of it. They commissioned Nintendo as one of the companies to make this propaganda game. They commissioned them in 1942. We have this very same concept in today's culture, too. We do the same thing. Think of the start of the United States in the War on Terror, or say the Iraqi War. For a while, we actually had playing cards where the face cards were actually top terrorist leaders that the American government wanted to take out. This is that same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. Nintendo was one of four major card companies in Japan that was commissioned by the government to make these. So that's what allowed them to survive this period during World War II when their international markets are gone. You know, we had talked about how they had been exporting to the Japanese colonies and also exporting to British India, even to the United States a little bit. That international business that Sekiro Yamauchi had been carefully building up was gone. Within Japan itself, the domestic market for things like Hanafuda was gone <laughs> because of the war effort. But the company was able to keep going by doing this war work. Obviously, this isn't something that Nintendo kind of touts today, being a propaganda tool for the militant Japanese government of World War II, but they weren't directly involved in war crime-type activities. They were a card company in Japan. They were serving their country, and they were making card games with patriotic slogans. But it's what allowed the company to keep going. As I said, during this time, Hiroshi is at first in school and then later is working in a factory. World War II, of course, ends, 1945, and all of Japan is faced with immense challenges at that point. The economy is completely ruined. At first, it's not even clear that the United States will even let them rebuild much of their economy. I mean, they're completely conquered. They're completely subjugated. 
things change once the Korean War starts and the United States starts taking a more active hand in rebuilding a strong, economically viable Japan as a bulwark against communist China and communist North Korea. You know, in the years just after the war, it's not exactly clear what's going to happen. Sekiro, who has been a visionary, just like his own uh, adopted sire, Fusajiro, who founded the company, Sekiro decides that they really need to modernize the company. And there needs to be a humongous focus on increasing viable manufacturing and distribution of its Western-style playing cards. They're also still making Hanafuda cards. But now that Japan has been so beaten down in this moment— They know that they're going to need to appeal to Westerners. They're going to need to appeal to the occupying forces. There's a lot of Western military personnel in Japan can sell cards to them. They're going to need to try to rebuild international distribution networks because domestically it's just not going to fly in the near future selling much product. There's a big focus on Western cards, and there's a big focus on modernization. So in 1947, there's a restructuring of the distribution within the company. A new kind of subsidiary called Marufuku is created to be a distribution subsidiary to do a better job of getting the cards to markets. There's a complete overhaul of the factory infrastructure of the company, making proper assembly lines to churn out these cards in a very efficient manner. There's this real focus on looking to the future and doing things in better, more efficient ways. At the end of 1948, Sicurio suffers a debilitating stroke. It is very clear that he is no longer has the physical and mental capacity to continue running Nintendo. At this time, at the end of 1948, Hiroshi Yamauchi is now a young man. He was born in 1927, so he's in his early 20s here at this point. He has moved to Tokyo to study law at Waseda University, most prestigious university in Japan. He is enjoying a playboy lifestyle. He is young, he is rich, he is handsome. The world is his oyster. He is dining at the finest restaurants. He is entertaining. He's going to parties. He's having quite the life as a ladies' man. He's married at this point. There was a marriage arranged at a very young age. In 1945, when he was just 18, he entered into an arranged marriage with Michiko Inaba, which is no relation to his father. It's the same last name, Inaba, but it's different family. Her family is actually a long-standing samurai family, so a very prominent, prestigious family that had found success more recently in the cloisonne business. So again, they're craftsmen trying to keep things kind of in the craftsman side of things because Nintendo is a craftsman company, even though the card business is starting to become more mechanized at this point, and it's starting to become more of a manufacturing industry than a craftsman industry. Historically speaking, Nintendo and Anafuda card making is more of a craft than anything else. He's married, but throughout his life, he was never monogamous. Hiroshi was not. He was very much a young playboy, so he is enjoying his life in Tokyo very much. He has no desire whatsoever to return to Kyoto, not at this point in his life. 
Tokyo, even though, of course, it's in the process of still recovering, even though it's still largely in ruins in many places. Tokyo is the capital. Tokyo is the center of the new Japan. Kyoto is the center of the old Japan. It is conservative. It is not as vibrant. It is a city of temples and stately old houses. It is not Tokyo. It is not modern and hip and always going. Hiroshi doesn't want to come back at this time, but he has a duty to the family. Sekiro cannot run the company anymore. There is no one else. His father's gone. He has no siblings. Obviously, whatever's going on with his father doesn't matter. Matter, You know, there's no siblings. I mean, he is it. He is the future of Nintendo. After the stroke, they have to reach their hands out and say, all right, it's time to be done with this extravagant lifestyle. You had your fun. It is time for you to do what you were more or less created to do, which is to serve this family. Exactly. And he did take that very seriously. As I said, you know, a few minutes ago, for the entire rest of his life, Nintendo was his life. Many, many people, obviously, are devoted to their companies. There are very few people, and I'm not saying he's the only one, he's far from the only one, but there are very few people for which their company becomes basically their entire life. But that was Hiroshi Yamauchi. His spirits rose and fell with the fortunes of Nintendo. He was entirely committed, but he was also very clear that it be his company. His and his alone. He was the boss, and he would broke no dissent to his rules. Now, he was not a boss that believed in or forced strict conformity in everything. Nintendo was a Japanese company, and Japanese companies have certain conservative aspects to them by their nature. So there were aspects of Nintendo that were conformist in that sense. Everyone had to dress in a company uniform. Even in the 80s, when the Nintendo Entertainment System is a big success and they're this entertainment company, the employees are still wearing uniforms, essentially, in the office. I mean, they're very strict on those kind of things. But he did believe that creativity was important in this kind of business, and he did not believe in enforcing groupthink. He did not believe in having everyone pulling in this exact same uniform, boring direction. He liked the idea of creativity. He liked the idea of people being able to be innovative in their own spaces. That was a big hallmark of Nintendo, and I think also important in Nintendo's success, because they weren't some staid old traditional Japanese company. They were committed to new ideas, but he was the decision maker. And when a decision was made to go in a direction, that was it. You did not contradict the boss. You did not contradict Mr. Yamauchi. So in effect, he allowed a certain degree of creativity, but he still reserved the right to have a firm, steady hand. Exactly. And he was the final arbiter of all decisions. He never had a huge Marketing department, for instance, at Nintendo. He did not believe in market research. And again, we're talking about the early days when he's just taking over, but we're also talking about the later days. We're talking about the NES. We're talking about the Super NES. We're talking about this entire period. Because remember, he's taking over the companies, summoned back to Kyoto in 1948. He officially takes over from his grandfather at the beginning of 1949. He is in charge of Nintendo from 1949 until 2002. Almost 50 years at the head of Nintendo. That's a lot of history there. You're talking about the 
Pong generation of Nintendo product. You're talking about the entire arcade system, the NES, the Super NES, even the N64. To an extent, I would even argue the GameCube. Yes. Over 50 years. I think I said almost a second ago, but I, I meant to say over. Over 50 years, this was the man. He did not believe in market research. There was always a small marketing department when he was there. He was the final arbiter on what the company would do and what the company would make. He had an innate ability to suss out products that would be successful. Now, obviously, everything Nintendo ever did was not a success. No company is like that. They had their ups and downs, and they had some struggles, which we're going to get into in more depth as this overview goes along. He was right more often than he was wrong, which is why the company continued to thrive under his leadership. And this is a guy that didn't care for fun at all. To not put too fine a point on it. I mean, he played Go. I don't think even Go he saw as something fun so much as it was something to be a battle of wits and wills and another arena in which to dominate. He never played games other than Go. He never had hobbies. He didn't go fishing or shooting or cycling or anything. He didn't play games. Don't think he really watched television or movies. Don't think he read literature, great literature. He did not in his personal life, do fun. He could be an unbearable person. Even during his leisure time, he was working on things to further the company, be that research for business practices or research what other companies are doing or talking to other business professionals in order to maintain and develop relationships. This man who had no fun in his own life had this innate instinct as to how other people would want to have fun. You know, maybe some of that goes back to the fact that there were two different Yamauchis. And again, we don't have a lot of information on him, and I don't want to armchair psychologize, but there was that playboy, right? There was that guy that was enjoying the Tokyo nightlife as a young college student and didn't want to go back to Kyoto. That person was still there. I think there probably was a more easygoing, fun-loving Yamauchi kind of hiding <laughs> somewhere deep within the stern, taciturn, arrogant, and cold Yamauchi that ran Nintendo. That's maybe what gave him this capacity to do this, to be so successful in the entertainment business when he himself had no interest in entertainment. You know, that may be being too cute about it. <laughs> I don't know. But he's a fascinating individual. You know, it's, it's said in, in David Sheff's book, this is the only source for this, so I don't have independent confirmation, but it's said that when his grandfather told him it was time to take over the business, it said that he agreed, but he said only on the condition that I am the only person in the company with the Yamauchi name, because there cannot be any challenge to my authority. According to Sheff, he forced his grandfather to fire one of his cousins from the company so that there would not be another Yamauchi in the company. You have to understand something else about him taking over. He took over the company at 21. Japan has a culture of lifetime employment. Today, that's eroded some, but it's still not entirely gone. Back then, they absolutely had that culture. They have a culture of lifetime employment. They have a culture of revering the wisdom of elders. There were managers at Nintendo and assembly line workers at Nintendo and artists at Nintendo and whatever else at Nintendo that had been there for years and years, even decades that knew the business inside and out, that were loyal lieutenants to uh, Sekiro. There may have even been some people that still there that were around from Fusajiro's last days. I, I don't know that, but there may have been. Totally dedicated to this company that have given their whole lives to this company. Here's Hiroshi, 21 years old, does not even have a college degree, 
no business experience, no management experience, living the high life in Tokyo, playing the role of a debonair playboy heir, not being a serious individual, now coming in and is going to be the head of this company. With his grandfather's approval, and his grandfather's still alive for the first couple of years, his grandfather doesn't die till 1951. It's a natural succession. He's coming in to succeed his grandfather, and with his grandfather's support, and with his grandfather still alive and functioning to some degree to kind of give that stamp of approval, but that ain't easy. He was not immediately accepted by the employees of Nintendo. He was considered arrogant. He was considered inexperienced. He was not necessarily considered someone who could carry this Nintendo legacy forward. He comes in, if he really did have his cousin fired, he comes in and tries to immediately put his stamp on the company in a very real and meaningful way. I mean, it's kind of like how they say, you know, when you go to prison, <laughs> that the first thing you need to do if you're going to be, you know, respected, I'm not saying this really happens, but it's kind of the, the lore of the myth of it is that you find the biggest guy on the cell block and you beat him up or whatever. You know, you immediately assert that I'm the new big tough guy on the cell block, so you need to leave me all alone. And that was basically Hiroshi Amalchi's approach to coming into Nintendo. <laughs> you said that he was at college to become a lawyer, so I take it he just never finished that degree or he was halfway through it and then was pulled out. Exactly, exactly. Now, remember, this was undergrad. So he was studying law undergrad. But right, he never finished school because it was time to run the company. Under ideal circumstances, he would have had maybe even a decade of education and maturing to do before he started stepping in to a role as commander of Nintendo. Mm -hmm. The first years of the Yamauchi regime are very rocky because he's young and inexperienced and he can be very cold in personal relations, when talking to people. He rubs everyone the wrong way. But he also has grand ambitions. He really wants to move this company forward. Some of this modernization had started under his grandfather, which we already talked about, but it was only just barely getting underway when his grandfather was incapacitated. He's very committed to moving the company forward and making it big. Really, really big. In 1951, after the death of his grandfather, he consolidates everything into a new company. You know, they had the manufacturing, they had the distribution, they had a few different subsidiaries handling this and that little business. He brings all of this together into a new firm, Nintendo Copai. Copai is kind of how it's traditionally translated or pronounced by English users, but it can also be read as Karuta, and Karuta was the Japanese name for playing cards. It derived from a Portuguese term. That's kind of where it comes from. It's still a playing card company, but now it's called Nintendo Kopai. In 1952, the very next year, he decides to centralize all manufacturing efforts in a new, expanded, modern facility. Like I said, his grandfather had already started this process of modernizing the manufacturing line, of getting it to be more of an assembly line operation. But Hiroshi goes bigger and bolder on all of this. So he's reestablishing the company, essentially, corporately speaking, from an organizational standpoint. He's expanding facilities. He's building things up. He's modernizing in 1953. They shift finally to plastic-coated cards, which is the way playing cards are made today. If you pick up a deck of playing cards in the United States, they're plastic-coated. 
They've got that kind of sheen and slickness to them if you hold a playing card, and that's because they're not just made of paper, it's paper coated in plastic to make them a little more durable and make them stand up more. No Japanese company had made plastic-coated playing cards before Nintendo started doing it in 1953. They were still all just in paper. All around the world, it had been paper until very recently. I mean, plastics as an industry is kind of a post-World War II phenomenon. He ships the plastic-coated cards. Very modern thing. In 1954, they move into a still larger corporate headquarters. You know, they had been in the old storefront from 1889. Then in the 30s, his grandfather had done the new cement building next door, which, you know, was made by the cement arm of the Amauchi family, as we discussed. Now in 1954, they're moving into an even bigger building. So he's doing all of this stuff to modernize and expand the company. But he's doing it at a very challenging period of time for Nintendo as well. Because cards are actually not doing so hot in this time period as they had been in other times, you know, the traditional Hanafuda and the Western Trump cards alike. The arrival of television, for instance, and other forms of entertainment are drawing family leisure time in different directions. You know, instead of after dinner, everyone retiring to play cards or shoot pool or whatever it is people did after dinner in the old days, now after dinner, people are gathering around the television. That is becoming the new focal point of entertainment. So obviously playing cards aren't going away, just as Monopoly isn't going away, just as any of this stuff isn't going away, but it's not as big as it was. Sales are declining. But at the same time sales are declining, Yamauchi is taking out many, many loans to finance the expansion of the business. In 1954, because of these new pressures, card sales at Nintendo suddenly take a huge dip. This is kind of the final straw. He's had managers and frontline employees alike have been very suspicious of him ever since he arrived in 1949. Not trusting his inexperience, not trusting his ability to lead the company into the future. Now it seems like it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. He's young and inexperienced, doesn't know what he's doing, and oh look, he spent all this money, and now we're losing money. Our sales are going down at the same time that he's leveraging the company and doing all this big building projects and everything else. Things go from under-the-surface tensions to outright hostile between Yamauchi and his employees. Because of the problems at the company and the financial difficulties and everything, he fires 10 employees. Remember, I mean, that may seem like, okay, fine, so the company's going through a slightly difficult period, so some people get laid off. I mean, it's sad. We don't like it always that America works that way, but it's a cycle that we're at least familiar with. It's a cycle that we understand that happens even if we wish it, it wouldn't. But in Japan, this is very, very different. You work for a company for your life, and the company takes care of you from your introduction into the company until you retire. The fact that you get fired is a major, major thing that has stigma attached to it, that has a sense of you screwed up so badly that they had to get rid of you. That's unheard of, practically. And then to fire 10 people instead of just one, but 10 people all at once, that seems insane in the eyes of many people there. It leads to a massive, massive labor standoff. The firings happened in November 1954. It's pretty clear that these are just going to be the first fired employees, that this isn't the end, that this is only the beginning. 
Within five days of this firing happening in November 1954, the 140 or so employees of Nintendo at the time form a union. 95% of the employees vote to be a part of this union. They go and demand that Yamauchi reinstate the fired employees. Yamauchi refuses, of course. He doesn't brook any dissent. That's not his way. So a strike is organized. The Nintendo workers go on strike. The strike lasts for 140 days, starts in late 1954, carries over into 1955. It's seen as a real general test for unions in Kyoto, maybe not for all of Japan, but certainly for in Kyoto specifically. It gathers a lot of outside support from union organizers and union trade publications and whatnot in the Kyoto area. There are many articles written in the union papers about Yamauchi and his fascist practices. Fascist, that's a loaded word today, but it's an even more loaded word not 10 years after the end of World War II. This is a real struggle for the heart and soul of the company of Nintendo in this period of time. It's just amazing to think that they're on strike for nearly four and a half months. That's a long time for a strike, and this is in a country that is not known for strikes. Right. It's a big deal. They see his lifestyle because he's not playing the playboy to the same full extent anymore, but he's still a person that likes the finer things. He is still very much an aristocrat. He grew up in a life of privilege. He grew up as the golden child in this life of privilege who could do no wrong. He spends lots of money on his personal leisure. He does go around to love hotels, as they're called in Japan, which is where you can go and rent rooms by the hour in order to have relations with a lady friend in discreet circumstances. Which are fascinating unto themselves to <laughs> keep your anonymity. A lot of the love hotels actually have these placards that you put over your license plate when you park there. Uh-huh. They try to set it up in ways that you don't even interact with any staff lest you be noticed or something. You just go in there's automatic systems set up to just go to whatever room you're going to, do your thing, you leave, take off your placard, drive off. Absolutely. He owns two imported cars in this time period from the United States as well. I mean, he spends a lot of money on his personal leisure and his personal lifestyle. He's seen or he's portrayed by these union magazines, which, of course, have an agenda <laughs> to do it this way, as this decadent individual who is firing employees while he is basically swimming around in his money bank. I mean, you know, they're kind of betraying him as this capitalist pig. They're overdoing it. I mean, there's no doubt that Yamauchi enjoyed some of the finer things in life. There's no doubt that he spent money on his personal lifestyle, but it wasn't quite as bad as the union trades wanted to make it out to be either, of course. They're propagandizing on their side. He really did eat, breathe, and live Nintendo. He wasn't just going off and getting fat while the company is doing God knows what, you know. He wasn't Flintheart Glongold. <laughs> right. So it's a big deal. And like I said, he would often suffer throughout his life from stress-related exhaustion and ulcers and stomach ailments and all of these things. During the middle of this, the pressure becomes so unbearable that he is hospitalized for several days just because he is so stressed and exhausted by this struggle. But he is no weakling. Even in this state, he does not give up and he does not give in, and he stands firm. 
it soon becomes clear to a lot of the strikers that this may not end well for them. And, you know, I don't want to, to make this a whole big thing on labor politics. I'm just talking about how it was perceived according to the historical research of Florent Gorge, who is a Frenchman and a brilliant leading expert on the history of Nintendo. So I'm not saying anything about strikes and labor and labor unions. I'm just saying how this particular instance of it all basically resolved. Many of the workers started to realize that if they continued to push like this, since it was clear Yamauchi was not going to give in, it became clear to them that if they continued this, then it might just mean the end of Nintendo, and they may all end up getting fired. They started to resent some of the union organizers. They started to feel like they were pawns in a larger game being played by these union organizers, because like I said, this became kind of a cause celebre throughout the entire organized labor movement within the Kyoto area. It had kind of grown bigger in that sense. It was seen as kind of this test case, I think, almost. Like, if we can beat Nintendo, then we can move on and beat other companies. It was kind of becoming bigger than just the struggle over the firing of these 10 employees. Some of the employees began to doubt the intention of the leaders of the strike, and they also began to worry that this guy's not giving in. If we keep this up, it could just be the end of Nintendo, and then it's not just those 10 people that were fired that are out of a job. We're all out of a job. Gradually, this tide started to shift in Yamauchi's favor, and there started to be counter-demonstrations by loyal employees that were supporting him in his efforts. So at the end of the day, he wins. He wins it all. A labor plan is voted on. Yamauchi does agree to take a pay cut. He does have to scale back his own lifestyle a bit from a public image perspective. But he's also able to chase all the big dissenters out of the company, and he's able to dissolve the union. He basically wins a complete victory over this and is able to finally and totally assert his authority. I think this is probably the last time he would ever have a truly serious challenge to his authority. He is basically, from this point on, the undisputed, unrivaled, autocratic boss of Nintendo right up until the day he decides he doesn't want to run it anymore. He retires in 2002. There's no indication that he was forced out. I don't think you could have forced Hiroshi Yamauchi out of Nintendo. He's got the union situation finally solved. There's still the problem, though, that the company is not in the best of shape. He's fortunate that there's another movement at this time that's starting in Japan in the late 1950s. The late 1950s is kind of when Japan's so-called economic miracle finally starts kind of moving into high gear. After the complete and total devastation of World War II and the country just being practically back to being a third world country again, The combination of just Japanese work ethic and ingenuity combined with investment by America and other Western nations to have a strong ally in East Asia, which has been falling gradually to communism. Other factors, I'm sure, as well. I'm not a Japanese economic historian, so I'm sure I'm oversimplifying and leaving other factors out. But because of a lot of factors, by the end of the 1950s, Japan is starting to really become that economic engine that would continue to just grow and grow and grow and grow until the finally the collapse of the bubble economy in the 1990s. There's also a lot of children being born. There's a youth movement, just like there was a baby boomer generation in the United States after the war. There's an explosion in births in Japan. 
with the war being over and the economy becoming more prosperous, etc. So there's a real youth-oriented movement that is starting in the country, and there's a movement amongst parents to really dote on this generation of children, similar to the whole baby boom thing in the United States, because the children of the baby boomers had grown up in the hardship of the Depression and then World War II. Similarly, in Japan, you had the hardship of World War II, which, from a Japanese perspective, remember, started even a couple of years earlier than it did in Europe, and then the post-war recovery. So they've had a hard time. So you have a generation that knew only hardship, and they don't want their children to have that same hardship. And so there's a lot of doting on children, on this generation, this boomer generation of children. This is a period of time when games and toys and other things that are geared towards children start to become more lucrative businesses just as this economic prosperity takes hold. In order to kind of capture this youth market, Yamauchi makes a deal in the late 1950s with the Walt Disney Company to feature Disney characters on playing cards. In 1959, they launch what they called Mickey cards, because they have Mickey Mouse and other Disney characters printed on the cards. They do national television advertising. They use their distribution clout that they've been building up to create a network of toy and department stores that are carrying these products. Even before the Mickey cards were launched in 1959, he started pushing new sales incentives with their distribution partners in order to turn the cards into more of a year-round business by having sales goals and sales targets and a catalog of prizes that if you hit your sales targets as someone selling Nintendo products, you could choose from a variety of prizes. He's incentivizing the salesman more and getting more of a year-round card business going, because traditionally card sales had mostly taken place in December at the end of the year. Now he's got these cards that are specifically geared towards attracting children. And the Mickey cards are a runaway success. They sell 600,000 packs of them in 1959. The company's sales grow 300% to about 600 million yen. It's a complete turnaround for the company. I looked up the cards here, and they don't really look like playing cards. I just see Disney figures here, Disney characters, what seem to be some icons for uh, some hearts or something. Is this part of a certain game involving cards associated to kids, or is this just some sort of collectible card thing, or do you not know much about how the cards work? So they did a few different things over the years. I I think the original Mickey cards were playing cards, but they also did other series. They did a series in the 60s, for instance, called the Ehan Trump series, where they came in this little box in the shape of a television, and there'd be a big image in the middle of a popular character. They started with Disney, but they moved into other beloved characters as well, both international like Popeye, but also early anime characters like Ultraman and Kutaro and whatnot. There'd be a large illustration in the middle and you could put it in this TV-shaped box and you just kind of have a picture in the middle. But it also had the card suits and numbers and whatnot on them as well. They did a few different things as time went on. Some of them were playing cards. Some of them had other things going on with them as well. You know, they even did some adult and erotic sets as well. 
not just kid sets. You know, all of this as time went on. But no, they, they started out as being playing cards, even though there were other contexts sometimes as well. But again, it's that Yamauchi family innovation paying off. So they went to plastic-coated cards at Hiroshi's insistence. That gave them a modern, durable product that would be more accepted than their cheap paper stuff. He greatly expanded distribution. It cost a lot of money to get that going, but he had a brand new distribution network that could reach toy and department stores. He employed modern sales techniques, like having sales goals and sales competitions and prizes and all of these things to motivate the sales force. Then he bought into the trend in youth culture and the uh, marketing of products to children that was becoming more prevalent in Japan to hit an untapped market. Untapped by him, not untapped by anybody. After the hardship of the bank loans and the shrinking profits and the union battles in the mid-1950s, by 1960, Nintendo is once again on top of the world. But during this period of time, he also had another realization. Because in 1956, he decided to take a trip to various places in the world, to travel to Europe, to travel to the United States. Sure, he did some sightseeing and stuff while he was there, but a lot of this trip was also for business. One of the places that he went in 1956 on this trip was to Cincinnati, Ohio, which is the home of the United States playing card company, the largest playing card company in the world. He wants to see how they do it, because they're the big guys. They're in cards, he's in cards. He's modernizing things, he's using new techniques, he's adopting more Western techniques like the plastic coating, etc. He wants to see how the big boys do it. But the thing that really gets him when he goes and visits that company is how small their offices are. I mean, the, the company does well, the company's successful, but it's still kind of small. And this is the pinnacle. Nintendo is already, you know, first they became the largest company in the Kyoto area, the largest playing card company in the Kyoto area. Then they became the largest playing card company in Japan. The next step would be to become the largest playing card company in the world, like the United States playing card company is. But when Yamauchi goes there and sees that company himself, he realizes that that isn't much to aspire to. Because even the largest playing card company in the world ain't that large. I'm sure this isn't the only catalyst. I'm sure he was already thinking to himself for other reasons as well that, you know, I want to grow this business. I want to keep the family legacy going. I want this company to become bigger and more powerful and more influential. It can be reductive. It makes great stories to point to defining, crystallizing moments and saying, this is the moment where it all changed. I'm sure it's not just that one moment. I'm sure he looked at the fact that playing card sales for a long period of time were starting to decline as television took over as the entertainment centerpiece of the home. I'm sure he could realize, even without going to the United States, that a playing card company wasn't as big as many other companies. I'm sure there was a host of analysis that he was doing that told him that they should not just be a playing card company anymore. Even though it's kind of reductive to crystallize something like that down to one moment, I do think that moment had an impact on him, because it's a moment that's always discussed. Whether it was that moment in Cincinnati or just logical trends and ambitions and wanting to get bigger, once they had the profit stabilized, once those Mickey cards 
brought in all of the money. Yamauchi decided that it was time to grow out of the card business, and he uses the proceeds from the Disney playing cards to take Nintendo public in 1962. This is the moment when the company takes on the name that is still its name today, which is just Nintendo Company Limited. No Nintendo playing cards, no Nintendo copy, no playing card illusions anywhere. Just Nintendo Company Limited. We're not limiting ourselves in the name to a particular form of entertainment. Exactly. If they wanted to, they could go back to the Nintendo Company Limited presents concrete for your concrete needs, if they really wanted to. (laughs) Right. What this means for Nintendo has gotten a little bit confused in some of the more mainstream history books, like David Sheff's book and some of the other stuff that followed on from that. Kind of the common narrative here is that at this point, Nintendo started investing in all sorts of crazy things, like food products and taxis and everything else. I remember you bringing up something earlier about rice. Yes. So that's not exactly true. We have to divorce a little bit what Nintendo was doing from what Yamauchi was doing and from what Nintendo was doing jointly with other companies. The taxicab business, for instance. In the 1960s, Yamauchi does purchase a taxicab company in Kyoto. But it's not part of Nintendo. It's just another investment. It's a form of diversification. He's trying out other businesses to see, do I like this? Does this work? Is this something that I feel like I can manage? And doing a little bit of side money, sort of like how you and I have day jobs, but we have side hustles that we do to Mm -hmm. experiment and educate. And sometimes that brings in money. Maybe someone does sewing and sells their sewing. Someone does a little bit of art, sells some art. Some people do a podcast and people give them money because they talk for two hours. Who knows? (laughs) Right. So he does buy a taxi cab company. The company is actually very successful, but taxi cabs are unionized. Taxi drivers are unionized. We already know that Yamauchi had himself a very bad experience from his perspective with unions. He does not want to open that can of worms again. So the taxi cab company, contrary to what some sources like Chef say, the taxi cab company actually did well for him, but he decided he didn't want it anymore because he didn't want to deal with unions. And so he sells it off before the end of the 60s. It's under a different name now, but the company is actually still in existence today, or at least it was as of a few years ago. I haven't kept up. There was that side venture. He also did a lot of real estate investment, just like his grandfather had done. He established a new company. Again, it's not part of Nintendo. It's just another Yamauchi family holding to do real estate. The word is that he invested in a love hotel, that he bought one of these love hotels. And, you know, the joke goes that he was then one of his own best customers. That's something that's in Chef, that's in Game Over, and that's in other sources. Florent Gorge, who, like I said, is the preeminent scholar on Nintendo, he has not been able to find any concrete evidence that Yamauchi ever owned a love hotel. Now, as I said, he had real estate investments. He had a real estate investment company. So Gorge surmises that it's always possible that a love hotel was one of the holdings through that real estate company and that he kind of masked it in there because it's a kind of sleazy thing to own. Gorge doesn't go as far as to say it's impossible that Yamauchi owned a love hotel. 
but he has been unable to find evidence of it. Now, David Sheff, when he did the book Game Over in the early 90s, he did have access to the Amalchi family. Game Over is a comprehensive history of Nintendo with a focus on how the NES rose to prominence. I mean, everything pre-NES is taken care of in just a chapter or two. It's mostly about how the Nintendo Entertainment System conquered the United States. As part of his work, he was a journalist, so it's a book, but he's coming at it as a journalist. He was given access to everybody, not just at Nintendo of America, but also Nintendo of Japan. So he spoke to the Amauchi family, and he spoke to close confidants of Hiroshi Amauchi and the Nintendo business in Japan. Chef had good sources for a lot of his material on the Amauchi family. We also know there are things that he does get wrong about the early Nintendo history as well. So you can't just take Chef 100%. And of course, he doesn't really have direct quotes in his book. So it's not like you can say, where did he get the information that there was a love hotel? There's not a direct quote from somebody that's saying, oh, yeah, I remember when Yamauchi took me to the love hotel he owned and bragged about owning a love hotel. I mean, you know, there's nothing like that in there. It's possible that he owned a love hotel, but it's also possible that that was just kind of a rumor. It's definitely true that Yamauchi was a philanderer. As I stated, he was married, but he also was very active with women who were not his wife. He certainly went to love hotels, and it could be that rumors started that because he was at love hotels all the time, he owned love hotels. I I just don't know. But I do want to make one thing clear, and that is there are some sources that are like secondary on secondary on secondary sources that, you know, are only reading Chef and then are parroting what Chef said or are parroting a source that's parroting Chef, you know, that's way removed, that sometimes will say cute things like, Nintendo owned a love hotel. Oh, my. There was never a Nintendo love hotel. If there was a love hotel, it was owned by Hiroshi Yamauchi as a separate business venture. It was not a Nintendo love hotel. So no, the company that made Mario was also not involved in prostitution. That is definitely not true. There's a lot of people who just create a lot of stories around a rumor, and that is very prominent in Japanese society. We see that played out in a lot of different media and other things. It is very conceivable that because he was seen going to one of these things, someone goes, oh, he went there. Oh, yeah, he went there. Maybe he owns it. I heard he owns it. Oh, yeah, he goes there and owns it, and he has his own secret entrance because he's so rich and powerful. Or maybe because they saw him go in through a secret entrance because he's a value client. He's the president of Nintendo. He probably has better ways of interacting with people in order to go, you know, I don't want to be seen as I go to these love hotels. So on and so forth. How the rumor got there, who knows? I imagine Gorge actually did a lot more thorough research in order to come up with the information needed to try and see if he could actually tie anything to him. He strikes me as the kind of person who would go to that level of trying to get that degree of factual detail. And Chef's book has a lot of, as you said, inaccuracies in it. Even though he had all this privileged access, I recall you mentioning before there were some issues with translations. There were issues with what he focused on, how he did it, note-taking, thoroughness, so on and so forth. Right. Just to kind of set all that to rest, maybe there was a Love Hotel he owned, but there's a good chance there wasn't, and it definitely wasn't a Nintendo one. So then that brings us to this other thing that gets kind of misunderstood, which is the food business that he got involved in. Most sources just say that, you know, Nintendo tried to introduce instant rice and it didn't work. 
that's not exactly what happened. And again, it wasn't just Nintendo. Basically, what happened is that in 1958, there was a new boom in the food business in Japan with the beginning of instant ramen. Now, of course, instant ramen is something anyone, even in the United States, is very familiar with today because you can find all sorts of instant ramen, Maruchan, and other brands in the grocery store in the Asian food aisle. In 1958, instant ramen was a revelation. The idea that you could just get this really cheap cup that just has some noodles and some seasoning, and then you just add some hot water, and it's ready to eat in minutes, was just an absolutely astounding revolution. Is it the best thing you've ever had in your life? No. But is it cheap and filling and easy? Yes. So with the start of the instant ramen craze in 1958, there was a huge shift in Japan with a lot of companies trying to cash in on this new food trend. One food that had not been tried yet was rice. Rice, of course, is a staple of the Japanese diet. So Hiroshi Amauchi had the idea when he saw this huge boom in instant food that this could be an area that he could get involved in and maybe make some money in. But this wasn't a solely Nintendo venture. It was actually a three-way partnership between Nintendo. Nintendo was involved. It wasn't just Yamauchi in a side business like the taxicabs were. But it was a three-way business between Nintendo, another company called Umi Kenshi, and the University of Kyoto, more specifically its Institute for Scientific Research on Everyday Life. The university was kind of developing the process for this product to make the instant rice. Nintendo was jointly working with another company to make and market it. Nintendo did open a new factory in uh, the Uji district, or the town of Uji, a small town on the outskirts of Kyoto, in December 1961. They created a new company called San-O Shokuhin, which literally translates as the food products of the Three Kings. It was actually a separate company, but Nintendo was part owner of the company. The Three Kings here are Nintendo, Mikenshi, and the University of Kyoto. Again, it's not quite accurate to say that there was Nintendo Instant Rice because it was this separate company that actually made the product. But Nintendo was part owner of this company and was involved, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It's sort of like when, say, Time Warner bought parts of Atari, bought parts of other companies. They weren't really in that business so much, but they were ownership. They had a say. They had a stake. Right. This company was founded in June 1961. The factory was finished in December 1961, and they started making product and launched the line in 1962. The instant rice just didn't work. You can dehydrate noodles and then pour water on noodles, and then the noodles get nice and soft again. You try to do the same thing to rice, which is a very different food stuff, and it just disintegrates. The rice was disintegrating. It was inedible. Also, rice is a very different ingredient. It's considered almost a sacred ingredient in Japan. You think of the love and care that goes into polishing rice for sake. You think of the love and care that goes into creating rice for sushi. Rice is not an ingredient that you are allowed to denigrate and demean in such a way by turning it into this dehydrated instant product that basically disintegrates when you pour water over it. 
the rice line failed, but the company was actually fairly successful for a few years. And this is something that all of the other histories of Nintendo that briefly mention this don't get right. Because they just say they made instant rice and it didn't work. And that's true. But the company then pivoted into seasoning, what the Japanese call furikake, which is seasoning for plain rice that is used in bento boxes and in other contexts of eating rice in Japan. So they introduced a line of furikake. And again, they used those same characters that they had the rights to on the playing cards. They did Disney and they did Popeye in their lines of seasoning because these seasonings would be used in bento boxes and bento boxes are what school children would bring to school. You know, the way an American child would bring a lunchbox with a thermos and a sandwich and whatnot. You would bring a bento box to school in Japan. So that's why they used Disney and Popeye and all of these, because it's a children's product as well. They did this for several years and were very successful. They also did try to break into the ramen business as well. They did Popeye ramen, Popeye branded ramen, starting in 1963. You know, it did okay. He did close down the business finally in 1965, but it wasn't a complete failure. Even though the rice was a failure, some of the other stuff actually did okay. Just a little clarification on that. He's got these other things going, but they're not strictly the Nintendo business. Instant Rice is a sideline. They only partially own that. The taxi company, completely different company, not associated with Nintendo at all. It's just a Yamauchi investment. Love Hotel, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen, but not Nintendo. Real estate company for real estate investment, another Yamauchi venture, but not Nintendo. Nintendo is still a card company. The Disney playing cards are what sustained them in the early 1960s. This continues until suddenly in 1964, the fad for the Disney cards and the other themed cards, Popeye, whatever, collapses. Well, that's not good. Yeah, people just weren't interested in them anymore. Just to give an idea, and these figures come from Gorge again, in 1964, the year that things start going south on the playing cards. The Nintendo business is divided as follows. 59.2% of the business is in Trump cards. Remember, from our first episode, Trump is what the Japanese call Western playing cards. A traditional playing card deck. A traditional Western playing card deck. 23% of the business is Hanafuda, traditional Japanese card games. 17.8% of the business is in other games. They've done a little bit. They've done some board games at this point. You know, it's it's not that big a leap from cards to board games because they're both printed products. They're already engaging with children with their Disney playing cards, so they expand very lightly into board games like Mahjong, what we call in the West Chinese checkers is another one, a few other board games. That's the Nintendo business. Because like I said, the food stuff, it's a separate company. The taxi cabs, it's a separate company. Basically, almost two-thirds of the business is the Western-style playing cards, the Trump cards. And in 1964, that business starts to fall apart. So this is a disaster for Nintendo. The stock takes a huge nosedive. The income is starting to drop again. And it's clear that another radical change is going to need to be made, just as Nintendo has pivoted multiple times. We've talked throughout these two episodes about how every member of the Amauchi family has pivoted in one way or the other in the face of economic hardship to keep Nintendo growing. This is another inflection point where a change, of course, is going to be necessary. 
So in our next episode, our most likely final episode in this trilogy looking at Nintendo before video games, we will see how Nintendo pivots from being just a playing card company to being first a broader game company and then a toy company and finally an electronic toy company, which will then create the logical transition into the video game industry. Still a lot of history to go through. And it's really a testament to how crazy this company has been going from concrete, playing cards of varying degrees, games, experimenting through food products and other things in order to just try and see what else might be viable for expansion so that we always have something to land in our feet to. Then how do we get to video games? It's frankly amazing that any company can survive what is arguably one of the most devastating events for Japanese society, that being World War II. I imagine that entire war itself took out countless of nameless companies that existed before World War II, and no one ever heard of them after. Absolutely. So, next time on They Create Worlds... We will make our continuing march to video games with Nintendo as we learn more about how Yamauchi continues to rule the company, bringing forth a new era of video games. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.